0: To Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk, I'm your host Steve Cooper and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something people, through my adult life I've lived in a lot of different places and I've met a lot of fascinating and interesting people. And about 25 years ago I waited tables at Planet Hollywood in San Diego and it turns out a guy I was friends with knows my guest, and in fact, he was back east, at a, we went to a Santana Earth, Wind & Fire concert a while ago, and her name came up somehow, and I said, well, get her on my show, and he said, oh, I will, I will, and it never happened, and then her PR person hit me up, and now she's on my show, and she has a great new album called Red Light, Green Light, which I actually, I was listening today when I was wrapping Christmas presents, because I'm getting an early start, she has the 25th anniversary of Ally McBeal, and my guest is Vonda Shepard, how are you, Vonda? Hey, Steve. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So, my friend's name is Michael Feldman, and he said he's known you for a very long time.
1: I mean, you're talking the longest time. It's almost possible for me to know anyone. I think I was I was nine or, or you know eight, nine, ten, something like that. He was friends with my sister, um, my older sister, Armina. So that's very cool. Yeah. So you
0: just came up and we were at a show and I'm like, get on my show. And he's like, I'll see what I can do. But you know how it is. So here we
1: are. Here we are. Let's
0: talk about the new album. I I read that you did it during the pandemic, which I want to ask you as a musician, how did the pandemic affect you? Because some people have said it was great because they got to spend time with their family. But some said it was very scary, too, because it was supposed to be a week or two and, you know, you tour. But how did you deal with it? And what made you decide to make an album during that time?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. There have been so many reactions to the pandemic. And one of them is that people felt unmotivated. And that was for some weird reason not the case with me. Um, And I think it's because I was really antsy to make a new album. I just was I needed new material to play live. And I thought, this is the time to do it, where I can completely focus. And somehow, I was able to focus and um, write about not only the pandemic, that's only on one song, To the Stars. Um, but I wrote about a little political stuff, got off got off my chest, you know, it was kind of bothering me. Um, and then some songs about my teenage son and about just being a mom. Um, and about uh, life, you know, and well, you know, there's so much that was going on in the world. There was a lot to draw upon.
0: Now the title, Red Light, Green Light, the song, where does that come from?
1: You know, that's just a basic song about unrequited uh, love and a relationship that was kind of on and off and and maybe was never even on. Um, Actually it was never really, really on. Um, So I just liked the visual for the title. It's not that it's the um, most intrinsically, you know, uh, significant song of the album, I just kind of, I pictured it being a kind of bright and exciting album cover. So we went with that title
0: for for the album. Now, as, as, as your writing style, you've been writing for a long time. You have a very good body of work. I mean, and, and like anything, I used to do stand up comedy. And when I did, when I was younger, it was one thing. And I, I get on stage occasionally now and my whole style has changed because I'm a different person and we all grow and we all want to sit there and go, let's rely on that, like for me, that stupid joke I did back in you know 1990 and I go, I can't, it's so dumb. But for you, how has your, through your career, how has your writing style changed or has it stayed the same, but just the topics have changed?
1: It's sort of the topics have kind of stayed the same in some ways. I mean, you know, the the classic love songs, I, I cannot escape those. And even though I'm happy in a great relationship for a long time, there are things that are unresolved from the past. So that's kind of my classic my classic um element, I would say, is just like these longing, painful, you know, ballads and, and I I feel them and I mean them. Um, it's it's not going through the motions. Um, I obviously have to get it out of my system. So there's, there are those, um trying to think, well, I didn't have, you know, a, a child when I wrote some of my other albums. So there's that whole, um, I don't know what the word is, just like the whirlwind of being a parent and um, and the, the frustrations and also like the incredible highs from it and the connection you feel. So like one thing I like, haven't gone astray is a song about my son. And, you know, it's just basically you haven't screwed up today. Like, you haven't gone this <laughs> So far, so good. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, that's a whole new wealth of material to, um, to draw upon as well.
0: Now, you'd said, you know, the past relationship or past feelings. When you write something like that, is it... Are you just exhausted after, like, you sit there? Because you're putting your mind in a, in a weird place. Like, you know, people who don't perform, like I said, I wrote comedy. There's nothing there. You do know, make people laugh. You know, I, I'm always... Uh, I admire songwriters so much because, you know, they... They put so much in, and you hear a song, how it sounds in a certain way, and you're like, how did they think to put that there? And it's just fascinating. But for you, what's it like when you write a song that is really internal? Does that, like, knock you out for a few days? Or does it you know, Are you emotionally drained? Is it hard when you actually record it?
1: That's a very good question, and no one's ever asked me it quite like that. So I would say that the draining part and the most intense part is the actual writing of the song. And once it's finished, I feel like this elation and this catharsis because it's it's gone you know like the pain is, is has been transformed into some kind of um entity that you know is separate suddenly um so it's 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 a relief um to write these songs but the process is painful and unless you go like right through the pain of it the song is going to probably suffer a little it's going to be weaker so i i just go all the way <laughs> all the way into it and then once it's done, I feel great, you know? And, and even playing it live, I mean, playing it live, playing the songs live can be, can be tough. It's, I have to make a choice and say, okay, people want to hear soothe me. You know, it's one of my best ballads and it's going to be a journey on stage and I need to go hundred percent into it. So yeah, it's painful, but then it's over. And then I go, and I'm, okay, that
0: got through that, you know? <laughs> now, now, when you write, and I know it's probably, everyone has different styles. And, you know, I get this answer from different people. Sometimes it is this way, sometimes it is this way. Do you try to usually write the lyrics first or the music first? Because, as you said, you do a lot of ballads and you do some stuff that, you know, it's so important. Like if something's like a hard metal jam, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, the words don't always have to match. I interviewed John Caffrey and he said, on the dark side, there's only one lyric. I mean, one thing, lyric. And then Southside Johnny said, do that whole lyric again. And no one's listening because it's such an... different song and it's upbeat but for you Uh do you do you sit down and do you say okay i'm gonna write a ballad today or i'm gonna write something else and then you start writing words or do you start with the with the notes
1: well it's funny because i do keep a journal and i write i write a lot of journal stuff and then i also sometimes will write some lyrics in the journal but really the way it starts for a song for me is i sit down at the piano and just kind of feel this feeling and it's usually um, I'll hit a chord and I'll start singing some gibberish. Maybe there'll be like three or four words that are um, decipherable. And, and it's almost like your subconscious trying to tell you what it wants to get out of, you know, out of this writing experience. And uh, so I'll sit there and I'll, I'll come up with like, hey, there's a girl on the road that follow me home. And then I'll be like, okay. I've never written that I just that just came to me, so you know so so then i'll I'll just keep playing it and recording it for you know fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, a half an hour, and then a lot of times I'll listen straight back and I'll say, Oh, there's something in here, and I'll find the best parts, and I'll realize what I want to write about, so it's not as much of an intellectual conscious decision about I want to write about this, you know it just kind of happens organically,
0: so did you ever start writing something and you think it's a a great idea and you're like, Mm -hmm. this is amazing. And then you start writing it and you get like halfway through and you're going, "Eh, I don't know if this is such a great idea anymore, but I'm going to push through it. And then you get to the end and you just go, what was I thinking? Is this ever happened to you? Is that, is that something that you sit there and go, Oh my God, I just, I I don't like this song. I got to throw it away.
1: Everything has happened to me, <laughs> to answer your question. Every version and iteration of every form of songwriting has happened to me and every feeling about it. So yes, and it's funny because sometimes, it's it's kind of a cliche that sometimes the songs that you write the fastest are the best, and sometimes that's not necessarily true. But I have a couple songs like, um, let's see, I have a song called uh, Train to Inverness that was on my last album. And it took forever to write. And it's just, I labored over it and labored over it and listened to it. And I go, you know, as Mitchell Froom, my my husband and producer says, you know, you don't want it to sound like you worked too hard on it. It should sound natural. So I listened to it and I go, whoa, I hear the work in it. I don't know if I'll ever play that song live. And I thought it was really worth the effort. And now, I mean, I have some hardcore fans who love it, but it, it's just not as an, it's not as accessible or as relaxed as i would like it to be so yeah so that's the version of i thought it was great i worked my ass off on it and then maybe i'll never play it but then there are songs like maryland which is one of my most known classic songs which is a very simple sounding song it took me probably three years to finish that song wow.
0: so there you go so when did you know you were going to be a musician were you were you a, were you a kid or did you did you play instrument? I mean, because we're all different. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be a sports announcer, you know. And then you want to be this, you want to be that. For you, like, as a kid, what was what was a little Vonda like? Did you did you did Vonda like want to play the piano? Were you theatrical? Because I know you you went to you took acting classes, I believe, and stuff like that later in your life. But what were you like as a kid? Well, there are
1: two, I was too extreme things one i was insanely shy to the point where even when family would come over i'd hide in the closet or hide behind the couch i mean truly shy it's actually a miracle that i get on stage in some (laughs) weird way on the other hand when i was born my parents said that i would rock in the crib from the age of three weeks old and sing all night long
0: (laughs) so i like to party in the crib you know (laughs) uh, I used to climb out and my parents would find me downstairs and they'd be like, how did you get out of the crib? And luckily I never fell down the steps, but it's something that when you're a kid, I don't know, maybe I just felt trapped. Like for you, it's like to sing, that's so bizarre because most kids can't even talk when they're young. I
1: know. I was kind of humming and singing and apparently I'd be like... -uh 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 all night and like the joke which some people already know is that they had to nail the crib down because it would roll across the floor <laughs> so I, I was born singing but i was extremely shy i was given piano lessons from the age of six and um i didn't really like them at all until i was about eight when i started writing poems and putting them to music and then when i was nine um, my parents who were very bohemian kind of parents had house guest who was a music journalist, sleep on our couch for a year. And he he did a demo with me. He got me my first gig. Um, actually, that was a little later. There was a woman who stayed with us who was a singer-songwriter. That was when I was nine. And she would sit and play her song. She was 19. So she was, I guess, considered a woman. And she would sing. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to do that. And she inspired me to write my own songs. And I was already writing poems. So...
0: So what is it like when when you're nine, eight, nine? Like what are you writing in your poems? Because you think when you think back, it's like you know. Because I know I don't even know if I like girls at eight or nine. I don't know what I was thinking. I think I was thinking about baseball cards when I was like eight or nine. <laughs> and you know that wouldn't be very interesting poems. You know, oh, I have a Mike Schmidt rookie card, whatever. <laughs> rhymes with that. What did you? What were you writing about that age? Because it always it always blows my mind when these. it's a lot of creative people are like oh yeah I was writing when I was like eight or nine I'm like holy crap like that blows my mind
1: I was writing some pretty heavy stuff actually and um I funnily enough I'm going to start releasing some of the demos or at least posting them um because they're just so they're just so weird and funny and my voice is very different than you would think um some of them were whimsical some of them were like ones called time you know when I, it's like, when I see your smiling face, I know it must be real. Things that people do and say, I just can't see or feel. Very like philosophical, existential, I don't know. So there was that, no, there was a, a very sad song I wrote called You Fell Apart. And it, I guess it's about my mom who, who you know, I love my mom, she's still alive, we're really close, but she left when I was 10. And so I wrote a song called You Fell Apart. And it's just, I didn't even realize at the time that it was about her, you know? Uh, it's, it's just such a heart, heart wrencher, heartbreaker. So I channeled all my, you know, that, that kind of stuff into the songs.
0: Now, when do you sit there and say, I'm going to go get myself a record deal? This is what I'm going to do. I am, this is my career. And you're in LA, the LA area. So it's easier. I always say it's easier for people LA or New York because if you're in Wyoming it's not you can't just knock on someone's door but when do you decide that this this is your career path and you're going to go for it and if you decided it how did you go about getting that record deal?
1: Okay well my first gig was when I was 14 and up until that point I was very interested in astrophysics. We had a big a room that was floor to ceiling books. And um, I would take the books out of there and read, you know, Isaac Asimov, Guide to Science. And I was, I really wanted to go into science, but I was 14, played the gig, felt so comfortable on stage and free to express myself that from that point on, I wanted to do this as a career and I knew it and I practiced all the time. Um, And then I got some club gigs and met, Warner Brothers they started paying for my demos when I was 20 years old and once that started I was really really eager to get a record deal so I kept playing live playing clubs playing playing for four years they did artist development which obviously would never happen these days they bought me a studio from my house they paid for all my demos and the next thing you know there was after four years there were there were other labels coming around and interested um, but I was getting very antsy and um, I wanted that deal. I'd say from the time they started doing artist development or maybe even earlier, actually, probably when I was about 16, I really wanted a record deal.
0: Why didn't they give you the, I mean, it, it's just weird. You know, I think, you know, for four years to keep doing that. And it's, it's, it shows they believe in you, but it's I, like, you're already spending the money. Just give it a damn deal already. I mean, did it ever go through your mind? Like, you know what? Am I going to be constantly in this development stage? Did
1: it ever go through my mind? Yeah. It went through my mind every day. I mean, like I really was getting annoyed, um, and and it wasn't. I don't think it was my ego as much as just the desire to get out there, and because and, I knew I was going to keep writing song after song after song, and I and they were building up, and I had been playing clubs. And, or 10 years. Yeah, so it was frustrating, but they were so nice and they'd take me to lunch and they'd talk to me and I'd leave and I'd call my manager and say, well, they still didn't sign me today. <laughs> you know? And finally, like I said, like Capital and Chrysalis and all these other labels started coming around and that was it. They they made, they, they
0: committed. So I know you, uh, tell me the story, didn't you record with Jackson Brown or you recorded his record? And I know also you play with Al Jarreau. You've had a really fascinating career because you had this record deal and then what happened after the record deal?
1: Um, okay. Well before the record deal, um before the record deal, um my cat just um broke into the room. Should I just I'll just ignore her. Okay. If she comes up, it's fine. The cats always jump up and do. It. Don't worry about it. Um my son is gonna come home though, so I'm gonna close the door so he doesn't Hi Aloysius. Just... How's it going? Um, All right. um... She literally broke in. I had it closed. <laughs> <locked>. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm sorry, I got distracted. What was the question again?
0: Okay, the connection with Aldra, but happened after an album, and they end up playing for Aldra. And then know you've recorded with okay. in Jackson Brown Studio, or just some great stories that I love hearing. Fascinating stories.
1: Okay, I'm going to tell you what happened. Um, so during the time I was doing um, artist development, I got I auditioned for Ricky Lee Jones' band. And because my ex-boyfriend was her keyboard player, you know, sang. And um I got the gig and I was 20 years old. So right around that time I was very busy. I was going on tour with Ricky Lee Jones. Um and my manager um was the same manager as Ricky Lee and Al Jarreau. So I toured with Ricky Lee Jones from 1985 to 1986. And meanwhile, I was doing the demos when I got home and I had a little money to buy some clothes, which was awesome. And um, I had in the in the interim recorded this song called Can't We Try with Dan Hill. And I got the gig with Al Jarreau. Um, and it was kind of weird because I did an album for Warner Brothers and started right after that touring with Al as a keyboard player singer. And that was very frustrating as well. I loved Al and I loved going on the road, but I had a brand new album out. And my manager who managed him and Ricky Lee Jones and me said, hey, come out on the road with Al and be his keyboard player. And you know you can you can make some money because <laughs> that's how it was back then. So I did, um, got that gig. I toured with him for four years and in between was home making records and, and all of that. Um, and then I got dropped from Warner Brothers after the second record, which was What's called. What's
0: that the like? I mean, when they because they they developed you. I mean, is that I always think you know, and anyone who's a performer, and I tell people this, you know, you have to have thick skin because it's it's not an easy. People think, oh yeah, oh you're overnight success. And it's not like that. <laughs> you're like, I mean, I know actors who've had TV series and haven't worked for a year. You know, what is it like when you're you know you're young, you just went out on the road when you're probably thinking, well, I wish I was going on the road touring myself for my album and then all of a sudden they go eh, and they drop you i mean as how do you rebound mentally because i would think it would just you know because we're we're performers we have a bit of insecurity anyway it would just it would shatter me i mean how do you deal with that
1: well it was really strange because what i it was it was awful first of all because i had a finished second album for warner brothers and at first they said we're not going to release it because they got they were they They were angry with me for something I don't want to say on this podcast. It had to do with a producer I was working with and a certain song they they didn't think it was quite the you know quite done basically, but we still recorded it, and I got dropped because of it um also my a and r man who was great, Felix Chamberlain got fired um like the week my second album was supposed to come out, so it was very complicated politically and all of that. So when they dropped me, it was awful and it was shocking. And they almost didn't put out the record. And my manager convinced them to put out um, The Radical Light just so I had a calling card to get another deal. Um, And Michael Austin was my A&R man after that. And, you know, bless him, he he he's, I'm sure, a really good guy. It was just very complicated. Um, So what happened at that point was actually very good for me as an artist. I wrote the album It's Good Eve and I dug very deep for that album. Um I was I had a boyfriend I was living with, we had a little studio, the one from Warner Brothers, and I worked my my ever loving, you know, off just to to express myself um for this album, It's Good Eve. That album it turned out to be my most kind of acclaimed singer-songwriter album, and it's it's my favorite of mine as well. Um Right around the time I was writing the album, I got a call from Valerie Carter, who's an amazing singer. She was singing with um, Jackson Brown, but she had to go and do James Taylor, um, his tour cause she was committed to James Taylor. So she called me and said, do you want to come and cover for me and do Jackson Brown? And I said, yes, I would absolutely <laughs> love it. I lost, I was dropped, I had no money. I was just, it was, it was amazing timing. Uh, So I said yes to the tour and during the sound checks, I would start to play the songs from It's Good Eve that I was working on. And basically Jackson came up to me and at at a certain point and offered me his studio to record the album for free, an amazing studio. And he said, if you can finish the album by next summer, you can open for me and sing with me. So he was like a mentor and an incredibly generous person in my life. And I, Paid him back for the studio when I got Ally McBeal. I was able to write him a check for, like, 25 grand to
0: go, here, thank you.
1: You know, it was just so great. Full how, circle.
0: How great is that, though? Like, you know, you're a younger artist. You just got drafted by your label and a legend. I mean, the Jackson Browns a legend. I mean, you know, get, you know, I remember WMR in Philadelphia playing Stay, you know, and all the, the, just the album and running on empty. And um, yeah. what is that like? What does that do for your confidence? Because you're all of a sudden sitting there, you know, you you know, it must just sit there and go, holy crap. Like, Jackson Brown said I can use the studio, and if I don't screw up, this is on me now, <laughs> if I finish yeah. this album, I get to open for Jackson Brown. I mean, you must have been elated.
1: I was elated, and I was so grateful. And, and I, I also learned from him about how to help other people, you know, cause, because of his generosity. And, and he is a renowned philanthropist gener- generous person and he did it with me and you're right i had been i had been broken down from being dropped from Warner Brothers knowing i was a, a viable artist who was young and i had so much to offer and say and i had my voice was super strong and uh, it was it was a, an incredible gift from Jackson and it did it lifted my self esteem is what it did it brought my self esteem back just being on stage with him singing backups watching him play and then having him say those things to me because he heard the songs when I was doing soundcheck, uh, it was it was an incredible gift to me, and I'll always be grateful to him.
0: So now, how did Ally Beale come about? Because you know Ally Beale, because it's so funny, I, my ex-wife used to watch that. We lived in San Diego. That's when I met Michael Feldman, and uh, uh-huh. and that show was like the biggest, and it, it was one of those times because it, it, there wasn't. Oh, I can stream. I can stream Yellowstone, or I can stream this. You know, you had pretty much the ah. networks, and you had HBO. But now I want to know the story because there was. Story, I remember hearing stories back then that David Kelly would see you playing in a bar, but then I read something where you already knew David Kelly. Tell me the thing because to get involved in a TV show and then to get put in it, all of a sudden you're getting a sad card. I mean, let's get real. You know, like you know. But tell me the tell me the whole story because I, I I just I want to know because I've heard different things over the years.
1: Okay, I'll tell you the, the exact way it went. And by the way, I've had a SAG card since I was 10. How did you get commercial- a SAG card at 10? Commercials as a kid. Oh, okay. And half Heart Lead, no one will know what that is. And I uh, did a commercial and then I got another commercial where I got to get the SAG card within, you know, a year of the commercial. So, and I never let it lapse. Okay. So I'm a good, I'm a good ghoul I am. Um <laughs> But um, what happened was, okay, David Kelly and Michelle. Michelle... Uh, David and Michelle used to come to see me at a club called at my place when I was 18. This is way before Ally McBeal. I was 18 years old. They came to the club to see me, but they were not married. They didn't know each other. (laughs) I just realized they didn't know each other. Then Michelle was married to another guy. Um, it's all coming back to me. And, um, so, so yes, they, they used to come see me play early on. Um, one night I was living in New York for a year. Um, one night I got a call from who called me from David. And he said, I have a new show I'm working on. Um, Would you like to, I would like you to record a song for the show. So I think the first song we recorded was tell him or something, or I only want to be with you. Um, And I'm sorry, my cat is sitting on my lap completely distracting me. (laughs) Okay, so anyway. so I I I get a call saying, you know, do you want to record a song for this new show I'm I'm working on. Meanwhile, right before that I had flown in to LA to do a gig at a place called the Key Club and I invited them and they saw me play and they were my friends, you know, my good friends and um so they saw me play and David Kelly had this like epiphany because I was being projected on the screen during the show and it was the songs from It's Good Eve. So he connected with the songs from It's Good Eve, um, and basically asked me to record for the show. I came home and then he asked me to be in the pilot and we filmed the pilot and once I watched the show I realized it was gonna be massive. You know, I just had this instinct to to move back to LA because I was living in New York. So I moved back and it all it all just
0: Exploded. So they put you on the show and you're on, you know, a lot of times, and all of a sudden you're now, when you are on a show like that, one, I'm sure when you walk down the street, people are recognizing you more. But two, your stock per se in live performances must really jump because now they go, Bonda Shepherd, you've seen her in Allie McBeal, and people go, oh my God, Allie McBeal, how did your life change? When that show, because it, it was popular from the beginning, but how did your life change? Because it had to completely change. Because well, also you had, you know, stable work. I mean, you know, it's like you know you're going on a series and you're getting probably series regular money, which people don't know. Series regular money is very good, and uh, and you're also doing the music. So, what was your? How did your life change? Like what what was going on when all that stuff was happening?
1: Um. It was such so much fun for me to have a job, to have a place to go to work and to do what I do and to get dressed, you know, like, (laughs) like, you know, recording the songs for the show was was my main job. I was the producer of all the music except for the pre-recorded music. Um, So to have a purpose. So just on a personal, spiritual level or whatever you call it, emotional level, I was just so happy to have a gig. Um, and I worked so hard and it made me feel very fulfilled. So I would record the stuff and go to the set and film. Um, but the way it affected my life is the summer after the first season, I went to do, I think it was Milwaukee Summerfest or something. And there were 5,000 people screaming for me for the first time in my life. <laughs> and I walked out there, I did not know what to expect. And, and they were just rabid fans, so excited about this huge new show. So it was thrilling and i knew there was uh, going to be a trajectory and i was going to have a career so i toured every moment i got every moment i got and usually i would go to europe um in hiatus i'd like sometimes leave the set and go to the airport cuz we we just squeezed in so much and you know i was playing all over the world to thousands and thousands of people and it was it was just it was amazing the only thing that was hard was sometimes people didn't know some of my original songs from my earlier albums so I was kind of locked into the Alley McBeal thing,
0: you know. So. How's a performer does it change when, you, when you're going from small crowds to bigger crowds to bigger crowds? I mean, it's like anything, you have to adjust. And I know some people say, well, once we're on the stage, everything looks the same. But it has to be a difference when you sit there and you go, like when I did comedy, you know, if you're playing in front of 15 people okay if you're trying to if you play i would say if you play in front of 500 people and you don't get laughs you suck don't get out of business because you know you're going to get i mean consistently i mean but how's it changed? because for you because you're now it's people are there to see you and the crowds are getting bigger did you feel pressure that like i have to bring my level of performance up or did you just say i'm going to perform like i always did because i always brought my level up
1: Hmm. that's a good question too um Well, because I had had the experience of touring with big artists who were playing, you know, like with Al Jarreau, he was playing Wembley Arena and we would do a couple nights there, 16,000 people a night. So I was kind of accustomed to being on stage in front of a lot of people. So I wasn't freaked out by that. Um, But for my own show, I did feel I did feel a little bit of pressure. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to come out and like, you know, not wear makeup and I'm just going to (laughs) like just. Just do my thing. I definitely felt like the show had to have, you know, great lighting and, you know, a great set list and the band had to be super tight. And um, I did feel some pressure. Um, And let me think. Um, And and it's been many, it's been like a, a journey, this incorporating my own songs over the years and introducing people to the songs. That's been the biggest issue for me in my whole life since Ally McBeal. Um, and now I treat it like, hey, I get to play some fun, familiar songs at the end of the show. But for my my show now, I give you know mostly I do my own stuff, um, and I I pepper the sh- the show with some Alley stuff.
0: Now, when you were in Alley, were you also you, you you said you were producing music? So did you did you pick the music that would go in? Was that your job? Like, would you say, okay, the, the music that wasn't yours? Would you have a say in what would also be played? Like, and getting those artists to keep their work to you guys?
1: David Kelly was so into lyrics and music and so prolific as a writer that he did not need my help in that department. Um, in retrospect, I could have possibly suggested like even Al Jarrell coming on the show. And I kind of regret not doing that because I was just so busy. It didn't, didn't cross my mind at that time. But David would just, I'd get the script. It would, it would have the lyrics literally incorporated into the dialogue um which exact sections he wanted of the songs and he chose the artists he wanted to feature like elton john and you know I mean, Sting and randy newman it was just the it was incredible gladys knight al green um and so i was uh the, yeah i was the producer of those
0: now didn't you um do some acting for randy newman
1: oh okay that was a one-off that was for faust um he wrote the Broadway show Faust. Um, and they did, um, it's called Encores Off in Broadway. It's like, you know, redoing Broadway shows that have been out. So I flew to New York and I worked with him and I played Martha in Faust. And really, Stephen, it was a highlight of my life. Just, I, I'm a huge fan of his, first of all. And it's such an honor to have done it, but just to get on stage and suddenly I'm like acting and singing like a Broadway show, and I thought, whoa,
0: I could do this, maybe, you know? You now, now what was your life like after Al when Ally McDeal Bill was done? I mean, how, I don't know how many seasons it ran, but it's got to be. You know, everyone says when they when they're on a, a, a set, as you said, it was a fun set. You know, you you get to know more than the other actors. You get close with the grip. You get close with the cameraman. You get you get to know people, and and when a series ends i heard it's very hard like patrick fabian from better call saul is i he's done my show a bunch of times and through the series and when the last season end like the last show was ended he was like oh my god I'm, I'm i'm never going back how is it for you because one you're already an accomplished musician but this brought you to another level I mean, this brought you visibility. Like, people every week knew we're going to see her in the bar, there's going to be some drama going on with the acts, there's going to be a flashback, and we're going to love it. So what was it like when you – did you know the show was ending, or what happened, and how did you react to that?
1: By the time the fifth season was underway, it was um, – you know, it, so many changes were happening on the show with Robert Downey Jr. and, you know, the new cast members – And um, I kind of talked to David and he said, you know, he's kind of running out of ideas. And so about six months before the show ended, I really was sensing that there was gonna be kind of like a a quagmire, you know, that I was going to be dealing with because of the busy schedule. So I started writing an album. That was my remedy for this. I wrote the album Chinatown and um, we, we released it right after the show ended. I think it came out like the year the show ended in 2002. So that was a smart move, I must say, on my part, because it gave me something to focus on, and then I knew I was going to hit the road on that album, not on Ally McPheel. so yeah that, that was it, but but it was there was there was a big there was a space there, and I have to say though, by the time that came around, I was ready to move on, even though i I loved the show i love I loved it, and I appreciated it so much. It was time. I was ready.
0: Now what was it like when you went on tour for Chinatown? Because you said you you there was a concentration now it's you're back to you you know it's back to my music and as you said I'll sprinkle in some Ally McBeal but you're going I'm gonna go and I'm gonna play all these songs and basically I always talk to artists you know if someone doesn't really like a song you always have that thing in your back oh I can hit this song and boom they're back with me how how as an artist how invigorating was it to go and be able to sit there and just say I'm playing my stuff, from my soul, from my heart, for me.
1: Well, I didn't do it exactly that way because I knew that at that point, 90% of my fans were Ally McBeal fans. And even though they were open to my new album, they didn't want to hear, you know, 12 songs from Chinatown and then searching my soul and tell them they did not. That's not what they came for. So it's been tricky over the years. Um, it's been a challenge, and especially someone like me, like I'm very sensitive and I care what people think too much. Like I, I worry. And someone said to me recently, like they, I'm like, you can't please everyone, and and he said, no, you have to please yourself, and people will follow you. But it's so it becomes tricky when you're known for something, and people like some people are like, oh, I have your first album, and you know it's Ally McBeal. They think that's my first <laughs> album. So it's just. I don't know. I probably overthink it, but I think I've gone to a place where, like I said, there's the balance and I do most of my stuff and then the alley stuff. But in the beginning, it was it was hard, actually.
0: Now, you know, after Chinatown, you took six uh, six years and three years, there's a few years and things. Were, were, the la- were the not recording just because you didn't want to, you wanted to tour or you had writer's block or what happens when an artist doesn't record or maybe you have, you have a child, but what happens when an artist doesn't record for like six years? Was it because, you know, Maybe it was your son or maybe you just said, I mean, you have to get tired of the business sometimes you have to get tired. I mean, it's just the way it is, but what, cause there was a six year lapse. What was, what was that from?
1: So let me think. So the, the album from the sun, was that the next one after? Yeah. Um, yeah um, well, I got married. Um, I married Mitchell. I had a, a baby, you know, in, in 2000, what was it? Two thousand. I can't remember six I think and so From the Sun was 2008 so once you know that whole phase happened I was still touring a ton um but no I I guess I didn't have the inspiration at that point to write and um coming off of Chinatown and all those albums I think I was a little burnt out actually now that I'm recalling (laughs) it's kind of burnt out I got married had a baby and then went on the road a year a year later So
0: I brought him on the road with me when he was a tiny baby. Is it hard hard working with your husband? Because I know, like, my my wife, she always says, you never listen to me. She goes, you listen to all your guests. You never listen to me. You know, and, and she's like, you don't... And I'll go, I listen to you. I just, I store it away. But what's it like working with your husband? Because you live together, and it's like anything. We argue over little things. And when it comes to your music, I mean, do you guys ever butt heads because... You think something's right and he thinks something right? I mean, it would just be for what you're doing, it's creativity. It's not like if you're an accountant working with your wife, you know, it's like, oh well, the bottom line is they're losing money or they're making money. What's it like for you working with him? It?
1: Well, it's fascinating. I, I have such high regard for him and his opinions, <clears throat> which means that when I have an opinion that I feel is kind of um overruling <clears throat> excuse me, his um opinion, it's I need to stay you know strong and stick to my guns sometimes and be, but I also need to be really open to what he's saying because sometimes sometimes he's right ultimately and I'm just I'm attached to something like there's an ending to the song Haven't Gone Astray and I go into these suddenly these new chords and and he said I don't I don't know I wouldn't do that you're turning it into a different kind of song and I'm like so <laughs> and he, he's a more of a purist in some ways um so we've come to a good place with it he you know I play him the song He sits there and closes his eyes and kind of nods his head. And then he's like, play it again. And then he does the same thing. He listens and then he comes back and he plays the song for me back in the the right key and everything because he's got perfect pitch. And then he he starts working on it. And it's exciting, I have to admit, because he is he just comes up with an extra chord here and there or a bass note or he'll leave space. Um, And so we get along pretty well when it
0: comes to that. I must say, we've come to this good place with it. Now, with the album, the latest album, it was seven years in between. Okay, what made you, I mean, what's something that, you know, it's the pandemic, you said you wanted to get busy, but what if there wasn't a pandemic, do you think you would have recorded the album?
1: Hmm, it, I would have probably recorded it because, like I said, I was feeling antsy and feeling like the need for new songs live. Just even like two or three new songs live lifts the whole spirit of the show Like the entire show feels new. Um, So I think I would have eventually, maybe not quite as quickly. Um, I I guess the answer to that question is that writing is so hard. And it takes so much discipline and work because I don't want to settle for shitty lyrics. You know, I, I, I just, I just. It takes so long and it's so arduous that, it's you know, it can be painful to do write an album. So I probably just didn't feel like doing it.
0: <laughs> now, did you, during the pandemic, did you miss touring? Did you miss being on the road? Because, you know, I would think it's like anything. It's that adrenaline high, even though you sit there and go, ah, I don't want to do it. Like, it's like I, I did a show on Valentine's Day and I got home and had a glass of wine. And I'm like, I'm going to do this again. And I woke up the next day and I'm like. I'm not driving 50, you know, 50 miles for like <laughs> 30 bucks. I, I'm not doing this. But when you're on there, you get that adrenaline, you get that high. And but for you cuz you've toured for a long time, did you miss it when you were when you couldn't go out?
1: Um, I did, and I missed my band. You know, I have the greatest band in the world and even just I missed rehearsals with the band. I missed just hanging and laughing and playing music and going out. I really did. I started to really miss it. I think I missed restaurants as much, though. <laughs> just like a nice restaurant, I used to dream about restaurants on the beach with candles and wine, and you know, and, and then I touring for me is just you know seeing the world, seeing new cultures. It just opens your mind and and it's inspiring. So yes,
0: I miss it a lot. One one more question. I just want to ask you about the upcoming tour. You have a few East Coast dates, and then you're going to Europe. So tell me, what can people expect and why only the limited U.S. states?
1: Um, I think we started booking this because there's a convention called APAP, which is um, Performing Arts Center's buyers. And so we were going to play for them um, to try to get some performing arts centers booked around the country. And my agent said, while you're there, let's just play a few shows. So that's why that worked out that way. and bringing the full band and it's james ralston on guitar who's with tina turner for 20 years jim hansen on bass who played with johnny cash and um bruce springsteen and many others and uh, fritz lewack who is um on drums he's jackson brown's drummer for 30 years it's a killer band um we've, we just toured the uk so we're super tight um we're gonna play some of the new album like probably five songs from the new album we'll play the favorites from all of my other albums like by 7:30 and um, we'll do some alley tunes and you know, make it a dynamic show. It's gonna be it's gonna be really nice
0: and fun. Well that's awesome, Vonda. I wanna thank you for taking the time to talk to me. People go to the website VondaShepherd.com. You know, when you go into the website, you can click and you can buy the album and you know Christmas is coming up. It's a good stocking stuffer. Albums are good stocking <laughs> stuffers. That stuff's good for Christmas. And uh, are you on are you on uh, Facebook or, or Twitter or anything?
1: I'm on everything. The main ones we, we post on our Facebook and Instagram.
0: So people, go go check out Vonda's uh, website. Check out her show live. I know she's coming to Philly. She's going to uh D.C. area. She's going to New York, and then she goes across seas. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 935 episodes there. Uh, email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter at CooperTalk, Instagram at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.